Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? The virus is spreading. It is ernst. Nous sommes en guerre. You must stay at home. Europe is now coming to their support. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. Welcome to our fourth special edition of EU Confidential, focusing on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And this week, we're going to talk about face masks and the reasons for the confusion around whether we should wear them. We'll also talk about coronavirus apps and the privacy concerns about sharing personal data with governments in order to stem the spread of the virus. But first, let's hear from Professor David Alexander of University College London. He's an expert in how governments should handle and prepare for big crises like this one. And I spoke to him earlier about how prepared the UK, Europe and the world were for this pandemic and why we seem to have been caught so off guard. Now, he's a professor of risk and disaster reduction. So I started by asking him to explain what exactly that means. Well, for the last 40 years, I have been studying disasters And as a professor of risk and disaster reduction, I teach emergency planning and emergency management. One of my lessons in my teaching is on pandemics. And I've been using that lesson for more than 10 years now. And it involves a scenario which is very much what is happening right now. Not because I'm particularly clever, but I simply took a scenario that was very, very well known. And now it has come to pass. How does what's happening compare to, you know, the exercise or the lesson that you set out? Well, almost exactly. Admittedly, the scenario is not uh, completely detailed, but by and large, the social, economic, epidemiological and medical consequences are very much those that we knew would happen sooner or later. Pandemics occur on roughly a 35 to 40 year cycle. At least that's what the literature tells us. However, if you actually look at the history of them, you'll find that possibly they're even more common than that. And they're certainly rather irregular. So um, it really is something that we we were well aware of. Uh, And I think our awareness really ground into gear when there was the World Health Authority an organisation report of 2005 on pandemics. And this gave rise to some national reports in the next two or three years. And it led to a period of pandemic planning. And in the pandemic planning, we all worked on the scenario uh, because scenarios are essential. They help you to foresee what is likely to happen and what the needs will be when something occurs. 
Uh, so essentially, by around about 2013, we had a pretty good idea. And one of the pioneering countries with regard to national risk registers was the UK, which in 2010 inaugurated the National Risk Register of Civil Emergencies. And that has gone through various versions. It's been updated at intervals. The latest version is 2017. And if you turn to page nine of it, there's a graph there with the 94 different civil risks that are mentioned in this document. And right on the top right hand corner is pandemic.、Uh, in other words, it's the most likely and the most serious of these risks, according to the judgment of the government. And that really ought to beg some questions about why more wasn't done to prepare for it. Yeah, I, I have to say, I saw that graph、uh, when I was preparing for the interview, and it's incredibly striking, as you say, the two axes in terms of impact and likelihood. And this one, you know, very high on both. So I guess it, it does just beg that obvious question.、Uh, you tell me if I'm wrong, but the impression is that we weren't terribly well prepared for this. And if that's the case, why? Well, one thing I teach is that in emergency planning and management, we've got three main ingredients we've got plans, procedures, and improvisation. Because every emergency is different to every other, we cannot rule out improvisation. But what we have to do is to reduce it to a necessary minimum because unwarranted improvisation is tantamount to negligence. In other words, if we're struggling to find equipment that we didn't realize we ought to have, but we could have known that, then we're wasting time. We're probably also wasting money and other resources. So, unfortunately, much of that was not really done, or rather, it was not followed through. Therefore, what we're seeing now generally with respect to sourcing equipment such as masks, ventilators, and so on, with respect to setting up systems and so on, with respect to dealing with the economy, is frantic improvisation. Now, although improvisation would be necessary because we wouldn't know beforehand exactly how serious,、um, exactly where,、uh, in exactly what sequence the crisis would develop. Nevertheless, we ought to be able to follow set procedures, and all of this was very much known beforehand, very much debated beforehand for a period of up to fifteen years or more. So, why then、uh, does it feel like you know there's so much improvisation going on? I mean, is there,、uh, in your experience, is there a tendency among politicians to, to in other words, not follow the kind of risk advice of the risk professionals, if you like, to? Overestimate or overallocate resources to some risks and underallocate to others. There are various elements here. One of those is the psychological side. We all tend to suffer from normalcy bias and cognitive dissonance and the syndrome of personal invulnerability.、Um, normalcy bias. We prefer to believe the most reassuring scenario. Syndrome of personal invulnerability is happening, but it won't happen to me. And cognitive dissonance—belief in two incompatible things simultaneously. For example, it's happening, but it won't happen to me.、Uh, that's one thing that we all suffer from, politicians included, and that perhaps would delay their response. What it needed was an immediate, aggressive response. However, if you are in a, a post of responsibility for the economy and everything else. Then you will think to yourself, well, what are the consequences of shutting down productivity, production? 
Mm. One of the things that struck me, uh, I want to acknowledge a New Statesman uh, article, which kind of led us to you on the state of of Britain's kind of preparedness for for this pandemic. And one of the things that that struck me, that as you say, there was quite a lot of planning done. But when reality hit, it seems like a lot of that kind of planning or, or the assumptions went out the window. And I wonder if there's a danger there. One of the things that that struck me was it's one thing to kind of plan, if you like, in an emotional vacuum where you might take into account a certain number of deaths or or severe cases as kind of tolerable. But then when it's real, you know, maybe particularly in this age of social media, when everyone's life can be kind of broadcast, I just wonder if if that's something you can really account for in planning and how much you think that fed into the fact that really, you know, when push came to shove, suddenly it was all improvisation or much more improvisation than I imagine you would have liked. Well, now I have to do something I really don't want to do and I really don't believe in, and that is speculate. And the reason for that is the British disease. The British disease is secrecy. And as a result of secrecy, I don't have access to many of the things I would need to be able to answer your question as I would wish to. But my, my, I just wonder, as I say, it just felt from reading that, that even if we don't if we don't go into detailed plans, there were, if you like, House of Lords committee reports, there were uh, documents that were in the public domain that, that seemed to suggest, you know, an acceptance of, of a certain number of deaths or that kind of thing as just being part of the process. But I just wonder when you're a politician suddenly faced with those decisions, it's quite different when it's real, when it's not an abstract. Um, And I wonder if there's any way, if you feel that's a factor in how these decisions are made and if there's any way to account for them, because obviously it's one thing sitting around a table or or drawing up a plan in the abstract. It's another when it's when it's real life and and real people whose whose lives are at stake. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, Emergency planning is the kind of thing that if you're a perfectionist, you might as well give up and go home now. Uh, It's very much a, a not exactly a muddle through process because we're trying to bring order to potential chaos. Um, it is nevertheless a very imperfect process. Uh, yes, we do accept that there are going to be casualties in earthquakes, in pandemics, in whatever else. Um, obviously, though, the objective of the plan is essentially to save lives. And we need to think in various ways about what is the best means of saving lives. Um, unfortunately, there might be cases where sacrificing lives is the best way of saving lives. For example, if you're in a hospital, triage is normally practiced where we give the resources to those who are most likely to be saved, those who are most seriously injured or ill and are not going to last, get no resources or very few. Well, we also apply the sort of uh, principles of triage to many other things that sometimes are or are not uh, life-threatening. But anyway, we need to triage, we need to um, uh, ration our resources and therefore do so in the most rational way uh, so that we can get the biggest bang for our buck, uh, the, the best results, the quickest results as well, out of the limited resources we have. Um, another um, top, uh, sort of topic of discussion here in Brussels at the moment is obviously especially initially, there was not much of a European response. It felt like a lot of different countries doing their own thing, uh, closing their borders, slapping export bans on things. Uh, you know, the single market kind of ceased to function as it should. 
Is there a case, do you think, and this is a big question at the moment, for a more kind of European, pan-European responsibility for for reacting to emergencies like this, for crisis management, or or does it need to be done, you know, along national and regional uh, frameworks? I think there is a great case for more European coordination that is supported by World Health Organization documents that say we need a joined-up approach between countries. Um, we have seen uh, the case of expropriation of relief goods. We've seen a great deal of profiteering. Well, I'm not sure the European Union can necessarily stop that in, for example, China. Um, however, uh, the European Union always has purchasing power. Uh, it would have the ability, for example, to distribute resources on a rational basis among countries according to um, relative need and things like that. So, yes, the European Union has a role and it needs to assert itself, especially at times like this where there are distinct risks for the European Union, which is a good thing, a good organisation, a valid and valuable and necessary one. Mm. So, in a sense, the, the, the risk, there's also a risk to the European project as a, as a result of all of this. Well, so commentators are saying, I'm not sure how serious a risk it is because we need the interchange between countries and we need that to be regulated, regardless of whether you have a European Union or not. Well, in a way, that's a way of saying you've got to have a European Union, whether you like it or not. Um, mm. Simply because we live in a globalised world and you cannot go back on that uh, we live in a globalised continent. Uh, we live in an area, in a, in, in a world in which um, national boundaries, the whole idea of sovereignty, identity as tied to countries is beginning to erode very seriously. Uh, and that needs to be regulated in a variety of ways. So we cannot do without the European Union. But I hope that the European Union will assert itself over COVID because its presence is really very valuable and needed. We're still obviously in the middle of this. Uh, some people would say we're not even in the middle yet. Um, but I just wonder if it, at this stage already you can draw some lessons learned. I think there are possibly many of them. Um, firstly, um, regarding where we are in this cycle, I'm not sure. But I was reading last night a book about the 1918 to 1920 pandemic, which in Europe lasted about 14 months and the second wave was far worse than the first wave. And that rather put the wind up me, it rather <laughs> worried me. Um, really, one of the great lessons from this was the need to act uh, initially and aggressively with decision-making and go straight into major measures and not underestimate the power of this disease. What it means is the moment that something like this sets foot in your country, then you've got to get on and do something pretty radical and drastic about it. We wait to see what this is going to do in terms of social relations, in terms of habits, and in terms of um, economic preferences among people, consumers, organisations, and all the rest of it. Uh, we wait to see what it's going to do in terms of human relations and how long the effects will be, whether they will be permanent in some manner or whether they will simply disappear in a short matter of time. Uh, I think it's far too early to conclude on that, but certainly we've all had a radical shock and radical changes have occurred and we will all think very deeply about what that means for the rest of our lives and the lives of those who follow us. 
That was Professor David Alexander, Professor of Risk and Disaster Reduction at University College London. Now, let's talk face masks. We're joined again this week by health reporter Carmen Powell. Hiding in the bedroom from the toddler, yeah? Hi, Andrew, indeed, yes. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Uh, I think the dancing uh, taxi was definitely one of our highlights um, last week. Um, listen, let's talk about masks, uh, which seems to have become, you know, gone right up the agenda just in the in the past few days. Give us a summary of, of what the original advice was on, on masks when all this began and, and where we stand now in terms of different countries, different authorities, you know, what they're proposing, uh, what they're advising. The original advice to people in the early days of the of the pandemic was not to wear face masks because um, they don't make a big difference for people that are healthy and because they should be left to healthcare workers. Um, there was already a shortage of supply of this mask quite early in the days when, when the epidemic was still mainly located in China. So the World Health Organization and many other um, experts told people not to, you know, panic buy face masks. But we've seen over the past few weeks, we've seen a shift in that advice. We've seen governments imposing people wear them in public everywhere, like the Czech Republic. Austria imposed them to be worn in supermarkets. And I was seeing um, news today that they're going to also impose people to wear them in public transportation. Uh, we've seen some local decisions in, in Lombardy, for example, and in Romania. So it looks like more and more authorities and, and governments are starting to advise people that they wear them. It seems to be based on a sort of shifting advice, uh, also from um, different authorities. The World Health Organization is not advising that yet, but last week their boss um, said that they're still looking at the evidence and he, he signaled a potential shift in that. Um, and many, many governments are telling people still not to wear the face masks that are used in the hospitals, but even a piece of cloth like a scarf um, over your mouth and nose could still make a difference. And uh, the thinking behind it is that this is not going to if you're healthy, this is not necessarily going to protect you from catching it. But if you are infected and you have no symptoms, which seem to be the case for many people, then at least you would not spread it to other people when you're in a public space, either outside or inside. Mm. The flip side seems to be right. There's some there's some concern that by doing this, people then don't uh, follow the other instructions like social distancing. Right. They think they have some kind of protection or they're, you know, they're protected from passing it on to other people. Right. So it's a. It feels like it's a bit of a balancing act and different countries are coming down on different sides. It's true. The, the Belgian health minister, Maggie de Bloch, said exactly that last week, that um, this is almost an emotional response because people feel like they need to do more to be protected. But at the same time, she was concerned that by doing this, people will not wash their hands as frequently or will not keep their distance. And I must say, I experienced this a bit myself when for the first time ever on after writing a story about this on, on Saturday, I went grocery shopping and I decided to wear a mask inside the supermarket. And it's true that you do feel more protected. And when I was, you know, at the fruit stall and I was next to someone reaching for the fruit, I was like, oh, it's OK, I have a mask. But then I was like, no, 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 <laughs> I actually have to keep my distance. <laughs> so it does. I think it, it's probably it, it takes some adjusting to to think, OK, I have this, but I still have to keep the other measures um, that have been advised. Mm. And the other development we have seen seems to be a kind of, well, at least a war of words or some kind of, it's almost like, uh, well, the word piracy has been used by, by uh, you know, authorities in Berlin. The idea that there's a, it's almost like um, on the high seas, everybody trying to grab these masks where they can. I mean, 
What's the situation in terms of procurement and getting hold of these things? Are there particular difficulties there? It looks really difficult for everybody. Um, late last night, I was watching the speech of the Belgian prime minister, and she was saying that Belgium has a lot of capacity, but under the current situation, it has become really, really difficult to procure any sort of material like face masks or even medicines, because we were reporting last week that there's a lack of, of medicines needed in intensive care units in many hospitals in Europe. Um, it still looks very much like the Wild West. It still looks like, um, you know, governments or regions are outbidding each other for these masks. And there's really no coordinated approach from any side. The EU has tried to do that with joint procurement, but we were hearing uh, complaints last week from some health ministers that this is moving really slowly. Some people were even wondering if, if banding together right now is a good idea because you then demand a much higher quantity of face masks, for example, than if you would do as, as a country yourself. Mm -hmm. And then maybe that's not, that makes it harder to procure rather than easier. At the same time, advocates of this would say, well, it's better than countries trying to outbid each other, better to coordinate um, rather than, than fight with each other. But it is indeed still the situation that it feels like there's a wild west out there on the markets for this. Okay, well, I think we've uh, we've covered the bases. Let's see, covered the bases in terms of covering our faces. Um, so, <laughs> Carmen, thanks very much. Thank you, Andrew. That was health reporter Carmen Pound. After we recorded that interview, the head of the World Health Organization said that wearing face masks makes sense in countries where other preventative measures are difficult to adopt. We're joined now by our chief technology correspondent, Mark Scott. Hi, Mark. Good afternoon. Hello, everyone. How's uh, lockdown life going for you? It's, at least it's sunny. <laughs> I know it was uh, rainy this morning. At least we now have a few hours of sun. So yeah. I can look it out my window and have a good time. All right, good. Well, we wanted to talk uh, today about um, various apps that have kind of popped up as a result of the coronavirus uh, crisis. Why don't you just talk us through, you know, the ones that are acting, uh, attracting most attention and, uh, you know, give us a flavour of why they're attracting so much attention. Sure. So this all comes down to government's efforts tr to try and track and trace the spread of the virus across Europe and beyond. Uh, the apps began, frankly, in China and parts of Asia like South Korea and, and Taiwan, and they've moved progressively over to Europe for a couple of reasons. One, basically because the governments want to know where people are. Second of all, it helps governments and policymakers make decisions about what to do next. So if I know that I'm, say, Andrew and I, you are hanging out and then you um, come down with the virus, they can then inform me, even by text message, that I also need to get checked. So it makes everything a, a lot more efficient. They made it mandatory in Poland, for example, with people who have been affected. The Brits and the Irish are about to roll out their own apps. The Catalans have done their own app. I think Romania similarly has followed suit. And I think we'll see a lot of these other apps coming out at a national level. And even today, 6th of April, the, the European Data Protection Supervisor has come out and said we need an EU-wide app. OK. And what are the concerns that are being raised? Because obviously, as you say, that's the, the kind of case for the defence. Uh, there's You can obviously see very valuable public health reasons uh, in having these apps. But what are the things that people are a bit concerned about? So this is a question of where's that data being collected from? Who has it? What happens to it afterwards? What are the long-term effects? So this is, comes down to privacy and data protection. And in a time like this, when 
Unfortunately, hundreds, if not thousands of people are dying on a daily basis. Privacy seems the, the least of people's concerns. But going forward, there are some legitimate questions to be asked about if I'm going to hand over my data and very personal data of my location and who I'm interacting with to a government. And these apps are being created on a very short term ad hoc basis. Do they have the right privacy protections? Where is the data being stored? Who has access to it? All these questions that we've been asking about Google and Facebook for years, now we're going to be asking the same thing to our national governments, many of which do not have the technical expertise that, say, a Google or a Facebook has. I mean, obviously, we heard a lot here in Brussels about the GDPR, how that uh, has a lot of uh, protections for people's privacy. So I guess one question with these apps are, are they legal? Does everybody think they're legal? Uh, do they conform to GDPR? And, and, and what does it do to that uh, general idea of Europe having a very high privacy standard compared to other parts of the world? Yeah, so that's a very legitimate question. And GDPR has become less of an esoteric topic now than a life and death question. And I think right now the apps do fulfill the GDPR requirements because within those very complicated laws, there are provisions that allow governments in specific situations to gain access to this data to keep people alive. And, and so it should be. So right now those provisions are being upheld and they are being enforced to the best of the ability that regulators can do right now. The question, though, becomes, as we move forward, will those provisions stay put? Will they, the governments continue to comply? Because I can suggest maybe a place, say, in 12 months' time, when hopefully the crisis is going away to a degree, who turns these apps off? Who makes that decision? I would suggest that governments might still want to have access to this very handy data on everyone's location in a country for the foreseeable future in case the virus comes back. So those are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves now. And right now, everyone's too busy in emergency mode to be really asking them. Yeah, there's a phrase in, in German, which doesn't have a kind of direct equivalent in English, but it's basically nothing lasts longer than a temporary solution. Um, what about uh, what's coming down the line in terms of apps? Because there's a lot of talk now about if people have immunity, that may allow them to go uh, back to work or you know get back out there. But then how do they prove that? Is that an area where we're likely to see apps as well? I think what we will likely see is some sort of a unification of the apps across borders, probably not at EUY level, but maybe the Brits and the Irish get together or the French and the Germans do. And then that will progressively build up. And I think what we'll see eventually is this becoming some sort of digital passport, you know, like we saw in China, a green for go and I can get on trains and go where I like, because it becomes the most efficient and useful and cost effective way of, of managing the population. So I think in the medium term, if you will, when we're trying to live with this, when it's no longer a crisis, but more an, an epidemic, not pandemic, I think these apps will evolve as not only a sort of information sharing, but also a population management as we try and keep those most affected or those who may be most affected as safe as possible. Interesting. Okay, well, I think we'll leave it there. There's loads more to talk about on the tech front, including misinformation, disinformation, all of that, but we will leave that for another day. Thanks very much, Mark. Thanks for having me. And that's all we have time for on this special episode of EU Confidential. I know I say it every week, but we'd appreciate if you'd rate the podcast by clicking some stars and we'd encourage you to leave a review as well. You can always reach us at podcast at politico.eu. We'll be back on Thursday with the regular podcast panel. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez and thanks to you for listening.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.